All right, once again, welcome to our Good Friday service. Uh, wherever you are at today, uh, watching on one of those 255 devices, um, somewhere uh, perhaps on your lunch break, uh, maybe at home, it's a great joy to uh, continue thinking through uh, this pivotal weekend uh, in redemptive history. As one writer has said, the whole Bible pivots on one weekend outside of Jerusalem. Uh, and it's a great joy uh, this weekend to open up the scriptures. Uh, and today we're going to open them up to Psalm 22. Psalm 22, which I have entitled the Psalm of the Cross. Uh, once again, if you are outside the IDC family, uh, good to have you tuning in. Uh, if you're not a Christian and uh, you're here for a variety of reasons, just interested perhaps in what, what does Good Friday mean uh, and, and why does this weekend matter so much to Christians, uh, I'm glad you're here and I hope you can hang around uh, through the duration uh, of the sermon as we think about this for a few minutes together in this uh, really, really important psalm. I'm going to read uh, just the first verse, and then we'll pray together. <clears throat> this verse, which is picked up uh, by the gospel writers. David writes, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Let's pray together. Father, we pray you would help us to take it in today. Help us to take it in what it meant for the Holy One to bear away our sin. What it cost Jesus Christ to give us the riches of forgiveness and eternal life. Fill us afresh with deeper grat gratitude and higher praise as we ponder our bloody, crucified, and victorious Savior. Amen. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. Martin Luther, the great reformer said, I feel as though Jesus Christ died yesterday. And there is always a gravity about this day, Good Friday. We could think about the cross every day. Indeed, we should think of the cross every day. I told Donnie before I got in here, like the amount of things you could say in a 30-minute message about the cross is endless. It's impossible to uh, try to communicate all that uh, this day means. Uh, and I take great comfort in knowing we have 51 other weeks of the year to talk about the cross and the resurrection as well. But I like what Luther said because those who treasure the cross uh, have, a, have a deep sense of, of, of devotion to Jesus uh, on this day as we think about what it meant for him to be crucified. I think of that old uh, song, the old spiritual, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they nailed him to the tree? Were you there when they pierced him in the side? Were you there when the sun refused to shine? Were you there when they laid him in the tomb? Sometimes it makes me want to tremble, tremble, tremble. The year was AD 30 or perhaps 31 or 33. After a mockery of a trial, Jesus was led outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem at that time was the main city of one of the most insignificant provinces in the vast Roman Empire. It was about 9 a.m. in the morning when they crucified him. Jesus followed a path that many criminals had taken over the course of the Roman, uh, the Roman dominion. Jesus was so brutally tortured that during the flogging, 
Because of the flogging, he could not carry his cross. This once stout carpenter could not carry the cross. And despite being one among many who died by crucifixion, Jesus' death is the most famous death in history. Jesus' death is the most significant death in history. The Romans got the idea of crucifixion from the Phoenicians during the Punic Wars, and they had become experts in this messy business of crucifixion. The Romans reserved this death for the lower class, especially for the servile supplicum, that is, the slave's punishment. Cicero called it the most cruel and most terrible punishment, and that it should not even be spoken of by the Romans. It was too degrading to even discuss. Jesus may have seen crucifixions. Indeed, it's most, it's, he probably did see crucifixions in this very barbarous age. But Jesus' death, Jesus' crucifixion, would be the most significant death in the history of the world. Why? Well, I'm glad you asked, because I have some reasons. Number one, because of who he was. Jesus' death is the most important death in the world because Jesus Christ was the greatest man who ever walked the earth. He was the innocent one hanging on a cross. He was the incarnate Son of God, whose very name means God saves. Why is that death so important? Because of who is hanging on a cross. Secondly, because of the prophecies and the hopes that this death fulfilled. As one writer said, here was the prophet like Moses, the Elijah returned, the son of David's line, the son of man, Isaiah's suffering servant. Never in all history had all these threads from centuries ago converged into a single knot, and that knot was Jesus Christ on the cross. Why is this death so significant? Because of all of the prophecies and all of the hopes that it fulfilled. Jesus Christ, the anointed one, was prophet, priest, and king. All three uh, of those offices had an anointing, and Jesus is the anointed one who is all of those in one person. Therefore, the cross was the supreme prophetic act. It was the supreme priestly sacrifice and the supreme demonstration of royalty. He was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world as Peter says. The Passover lamb in Exodus was like the movie trailer of this epic event on Good Friday. And the New Testament writers tell us that this was no accident. Jesus' death was not accidental. It was providential. As Peter says in Acts chapter 2, Jesus was delivered up by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. A third reason this death is so important is because of what it achieved. And here we could go into endless listing of what it achieved. But just to raise a couple of them, it brought reconciliation between humanity and God. First Peter says that Christ died that he might bring us to God. That's what today means so much to us. Because on this day, through this cross and then the resurrection, Jesus has brought us to God. This death has brought us forgiveness of sins. Paul writes in Ephesians 1, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Jesus took the punishment that we receive so that we can receive his righteousness. Further, this death has a cosmic significance. 
as Paul writes in Colossians 1, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. That is, it was the beginning of a new creation. Jesus is doing something cosmic. And when you think about it, there are really only two religions. There is the religion of human achievement or the religion of divine accomplishment. And today we are celebrating divine accomplishment, that Jesus Christ paid it all. That's why we call it Good Friday. It's good news. Jesus did the work. He lived a perfect life. He died this substitutionary death. Why? That he might bring us to God, that he might forgive us of our sins, that he might bring about a new creation. That's a Good Friday. Thirdly, fourthly, uh, I forgot where I was, fourthly, because of what motivated. This death is significant because it demonstrates the love of God and the justice of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his own son. The cross is showing us the great love of God, how God demonstrated his love, Paul says, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And also the justice of God, that God would not overlook sin, but he would punish sin. And we see on the cross the beautiful display of God's holiness and God's mercy. Well, this day is important not just because of who it was hanging on that cross and not just because of the prophecies it fulfilled and what it achieved and the motives it displays, but because of Jesus' will to endure it. If you think about this, my friends, we've been saying this, uh, we said it a little bit last week, but Jesus is in charge of Holy Week. He says, you do not take my life, I lay it down. And Jesus could have ended the whole thing. He could have called down legions of angels, but he didn't. Jesus endured it. He stayed on the cross in obedience to the Father, in great love of humanity. Six, the cross is significant because of what it teaches us, of what it exemplifies for us. You want to know what love looks like? Look to the cross. You want to know what humility looks like? Look to the cross. <clears throat> You want to know how to be faithful in suffering? Look to the cross. You want to know how to respond to persecution? Look to the cross. You want to know how the path to glory first leads through suffering? Look to the cross. And finally, this day is so important and this death is the most important death in history because of the future it points us to. The death of Jesus was not the end. The resurrection of Jesus was not the end. The ascension of Jesus was not the end. All of history is moving to the day in which the redeemed from around the world sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. This day reminds us of that day. Remember how Luther said that? There are only two days on the calendar, this day and that day. This Good Friday today reminds us of that day which is to come. Soon we will see, as the hymn says, what the cross has achieved. We'll see it. Now, keep all of that in mind as we read Psalm 22 together. Psalm 22 is a psalm that David wrote about a thousand years before the crucifixion of Christ. And yet, David writes about it as if he's there. And you've you got to ask yourself, like, how? How could David write this in a period of time, by the way, in which David would have been um, unaware of crucifixions? This is a thousand years before the coming of Christ. And we get the answer to that um, in a variety of, of places, but one of them is in Acts chapter 2, verse 30. 
where it says that David was not only a king, but David was also a prophet. The Holy Spirit gives David insight into things to come. Now, I definitely think this is a psalm that had meaning for David in David's present moment, to be sure. But the ultimate fulfillment of this psalm would transcend David. It would go beyond David. And in fact, if you're looking at a Bible, you'll see how Psalm 22, 23, and 24, if you were to go read them all together, form what some call a messianic trilogy. How Psalm 22 talks about the crucifixion. Psalm 23, you could see Christ as either shepherd or lamb. I think the psalm is written from a lamb's perspective who passes through death and uh, ascends into the house of the Lord. I think it's better to see Christ as lamb in the psalm. And then in 24 is the psalm of the crown of Jesus ascending and, and it's all of heaven receiving their king. Who is this king of glory? Let him, let him come in. And those three psalms um, uh, are preceded by two what's called royal psalms, psalms about the king. So we have a whole cluster of psalms here that say something about the period of time in which uh, David writes, but they also point ahead to David's greater son, something that goes beyond David. As one writer has said, David's language overflows all its natural banks. <laughs> like David's life cannot contain all of this. Uh, it transcends David's life. It goes beyond David. It shows us in Psalm 22 <clears throat> how Jesus is the righteous sufferer par excellence. It clearly prefigures his death, and it also includes his triumph, where it begins with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it ends with, he has done it, which can be translated, it is finished. It moves from despair and lament to triumph. Here's what the Spurge says. You know you can't get out of a Good Friday without a Spurge quote. He writes, for plaintive expressions uprising from unutterable depths of woe, we may say of this psalm, there is none like it. It is the photograph of our Lord's saddest hours, the record of his dying words, the lacrimatory, that is, prompting of his last tears, the memorial of his expiring joys. David and his afflictions may hear in a very modified sense uh, afflictions may hear in a very modified sense, but as the star is concealed by the light of the sun who sees Jesus, will probably neither see David nor care to see David. We should reverently, putting off our shoes from our feet, as Moses did at the burning bush, for if there be holy, holy ground anywhere in Scripture, it is this psalm. Now we know Jesus cited this psalm. It's possible the entire psalm was on his mind in his dying hours. Was Jesus working his way through this psalm as he suffered under Pontius Pilate, as he was being crucified? We know that Jesus' entire understanding of who he was and what he was about was directly related to his own understanding of Scripture. You know, many believe that to understand Jesus at a deeper level, you need to take a trip to Israel. And while I recommend that if you can, what you really need to do is take a trip to the Old Testament because this is the Bible that Jesus read, the Old Testament. This is the Bible that Jesus memorized as a child. This is the Bible that Jesus quotes throughout his ministry. And Jesus lived with these psalms on his lips. 
He lived with Psalm 22. He dies with Psalm 22 on his lips. And there are at least seven direct references in the New Testament from Psalm 22. Verse 1 is quoted in Matthew 27 and Mark 15. Verse 7 is quoted in Matthew 27 as well, as is verse 8. Verse 15 is fulfilled in John 19, verse 28, it is finished, or excuse me, I thirst. Verse 18 is uh, found also in Mark 15, Luke 23, John 19. Verse 22 is quoted uh, by Hebrews uh, as uh, words of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12, and then as I mentioned, verse 31. I believe that Jesus understood his entire death, that his entire death would be a Psalm 22 kind of death. And I think one of the places that Jesus found strength as he walked the path to the cross was in understanding that Psalm 22 was the plan. This was the battle plan laid out ahead of time. He knew what kind of death he would die. And just as Jesus was strengthened by the scriptures in the wilderness, when he was tempted by the devil, I think Jesus was strengthened at the cross as he meditated on this particular psalm. Now that's a long introduction to a short sermon because I want to leave you to meditate on Psalm 22 um, the rest of the day. And what I'd like to do is simply give you a simple outline of this psalm in just two parts. And um, this is not original to me that the psalm is clearly divided in two parts. Uh, chapter 1 verse or chapter 22, verse 1 to 21, and then verse 22 to the end. But what I think is particularly interesting, a way to think about it, is in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11, Peter uses the phrase, the sufferings of Christ and the glories that are to follow. And I think that's exactly the way this psalm is outlined. The first 21 verses are the sufferings of Christ, and verses 22 to the end speak of the glories that are to follow. So let's just have a quick look at this psalm. Verse 1, Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? We begin in darkness. We begin with separation. Jesus, bearing the sins of the world as he endures desertion, cries out in agony, and he is holding on to the promises of the psalm, the rest of the psalm, as he cries out in a cry really of disorientation. As he says, why are you so far from saving me? He's not used to this. Jesus is used to the nearness of the Father, but now he senses a, a separation. He says in verse two, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, and I find no rest. Jesus cries out and the Father is silent. It's very similar to the Garden of Gethsemane. If there is another way, let, there, let this cup pass from me. And the Father is silent when the Son asks for an alternative. As Christians, we will never be abandoned. Why? Because Christ was abandoned for us. Jesus tells us, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. But here Jesus is experiencing that mysterious forsakenness on the cross. What is it that fortifies Jesus? Notice verses 3 to 5, there is praise that now comes out of uh, the suffering one's lips. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. 
Jesus, in this moment of disorientation, this moment of aloneness, reminds himself of two things, and this is very instructive for us, the character of God and God's history of faithfulness. As he cries out, you, O Lord, notice you, 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 verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, getting our attention off ourselves and putting them on the character of God and God's work in history. Yet you are holy. And think about that. How, how, how could the holiness of God possibly be an encouragement to you? when you feel like you're suffering or that you are alone? Well, I think what we need in our times of grief, our times of sorrow, our time of disorientation is we need a rock. We need something that we can come back to which we know to be true. And my friends, God is holy today. God will be holy tomorrow. He will be holy the rest of our lives. He will be holy throughout eternity. And so in our time of disorientation during this coronavirus, we too go to the rock. We recognize who God is, and we recognize God's work in history, just as the Son does here, as he says, in you our fathers trusted. Our Father can be trusted. We can say today, if Jesus Christ can trust the Father suspended on a crossbeam, dying naked in an unspeakable agony, we can trust the Father. He's holy, he is good, he is entirely trustworthy. Jesus moves back to lament here. David, in a greater way, Christ, says in verses six to eight, some very striking words. All, he says, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. Jesus here has a feeling of, of worthlessness, right? I am not a man, but I am a worm. Spurgeon says, what a contrast between I am and I am a worm. Isaiah tells us that he had no beauty that people should desire him. He was despised and rejected. There's probably more going on with this worm than we first realized, though. Uh, when you study this word worm, it's very striking. It obviously means something undesirable, something worthless, a worm. But the Hebrew word toloth is translated in Isaiah 1, verse 18, and in Exodus 25, verse 4, as scarlet, red. And why would a Hebrew word be translated worm in one place and red or scarlet in another place? Well, there was a worm that was called the scarlet worm. And the worm became called the scarlet worm because when it died, this little worm became a source of fluid used to make scarlet dye. And in a very similar way, when this worm was crushed and red scarlet poured out and was valuable, more valuable than you would imagine. So Jesus Christ was like this little worm who is crushed and outflowing from this crushing was something so valuable, his blood, that would not change the, the color of our physical garments, but would change our own spiritual garments. He looked worthless on that cross, but what was happening there was of infinite value. All they could see was a worm, but God was doing something. He was doing something that had ramifications for years and years and years, and we are part of the fruit of that crushing. 
Verse 7, all who seek me mock me. They make their mouths at me and they wag their heads. And they're mocking Jesus saying, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. You can find this in Matthew 27. If this guy really trusts the Lord, then what's he doing on this cross? And here's the, one of the ironies, one of the many ironies of the cross, is that the one who is mocked, the one who looks like he's not trusting the Father, is trusting the Father. He's trusting the Father as he hangs there. Trusting God often looks like foolishness to people. Verses 9 and 10, you see his faith again. Yet you are the one who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. He's recalling again the past faithfulness of God. And then there's another plea here. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. There is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouth at me like a ravening and roaring lion. We read here of the, the enemies of Jesus surrounding him. And here's another way that Jesus can identify with us. He knows what it's like to be bullied. He knows what it's like to have uh, criticism. He knows what it's like to be mocked. He knows what it is like to be tormented. We will be opposed by people. That's why Peter says that we endure persecution like Jesus. We follow in his steps. And we too have an enemy who is a roaring lion, namely the devil. And so we go to Jesus in these moments in which we are facing affliction and we realize that he understands them. He can identify with us. And we ask for his help in those moments. Verse 14 speaks of the anguish, the physical torment of Jesus. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. He's out of strength. And again, here is one of the ironies of the cross. The one who looks like he has no power has all power. And he, he's thirsty. As John picks up this idea, my strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. I thirst, had to proceed, it is finished. And then he speaks of his shame. Dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. Again, some thousand years ahead of time. And this text is given to us as if David was around the foot of the cross watching those soldiers uh, try to, to get the garments of Jesus. A garment, by the way, was really represented the entire livelihood of a, of a man. When you died, your garment was passed off to a, a relative. Uh, it's what you needed was your garment. Everything from Jesus is taken away. He is stripped, his garment's taken so that we can have his garment of righteousness. But you, O Lord, verse 19, do not be far off. Here's another plea. O you have been my help. Come quickly to my aid. Here's, here's what we do. Another great example here from the cross. of our, In our loneliness, we're, we're crying out for the nearness of the Lord, that his nearness would be our good. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. This is his final plea, but there is no answer. 
This is the suffering of Jesus Christ. This is the one who is fulfilling all the messianic hopes and prophecies. This is the one who is hanging there because of sinners like us. This is one who is demonstrating the great love of God and the great justice of God. And then there is this great pivot in verse 22. As many scholars have pointed out, this is uh, really the high point of the psalm. Verse 22 begins to talk about the glories that would follow. The glories that would follow. Psalm 22 doesn't end with Jesus hanging on the cross. It looks ahead to what our future will involve. As Jesus says in verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. This is Jesus entering into the joy that was set before him as he endured the cross, despising the shame. His mind goes to the joy that is set before him. It's really a statement of faith after hearing no answer in verses 19 and 21. He isn't crying for deliverance anymore. Now Jesus is anticipating resurrection as he envisions being alive again. I mean, he's dying, and now he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. How is that going to happen? And when does that happen? Well, if you read Matthew 28 and you read John 20, what do you see as Mary Magdalene comes to the cross after she is wowed by seeing the resurrected Lord? Jesus says to her, go tell my brothers that I'm going before them to Galilee, and they will meet me there. Hebrews picks this up in chapter 2, verse 12, attributing these words to Jesus himself. Yes, Jesus here is envisioning something great, something glorious, a great assembly, a great congregation. And notice how great it is. Verse 23, you who fear the Lord, praise him. He's leading the worship time now. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all of you, offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. For you comes my, comes my praise in the great congregation. Now again, Jesus didn't have a great congregation after the resurrection. He appeared to 500 or so, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. But this is a look ahead further to the great day of Pentecost and beyond. Now Jesus is worshipped today around the world by a great congregation, a great assembly of people. My vows I will perform, he begins to talk about the, a great feast. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. And then the psalm ends with this vision of a glorious kingdom. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord all the families of the nations shall worship before you. What does that sound like? But Genesis 12, all the families of the earth in this Messiah would be blessed. The psalm begins with Jesus saying, my God, why have you forsaken me? And now we get to verse 27, and somehow all the families of the earth are going to be blessed in him because Jesus didn't stay dead. He got up for kingship, verse 28, belongs to the Lord. He is the ruler of the nations. Now we are extending beyond the borders of Israel to the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and, and worship 
Before him they shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. And that is the great triumph of Easter. He has done it. It begins with, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it ends with those glorious words, it is finished. It is finished. To tell us die. As Spurgeon said, it would take every word that was ever spoken or ever will be spoken to fully explain that one word, to telestai. It is finished. Jesus has made atonement. So church, on this Good Friday, behold your Savior. Jesus, the sufferer. Jesus, the substitute. Jesus, the reconciler. Jesus, the conqueror. Jesus, the trailblazer. And Jesus, my unbelieving friend, the magnet, the one who said, if I be lifted up, I will draw people to myself. If you're not a Christian, would you consider embracing Jesus Christ? You know, after Jesus said his hour had come in John chapter 12, the Greeks showed up and they said, we wanna see Jesus. And Jesus says, my hour has come. And then he goes right into this little analogy and he says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it can bear no fruit. But if it does fall in the ground and dies, it bears much fruit. An analogy that was pointing to the great fruit of Jesus' death. He had to die in order to, to bear fruit. And the death of Jesus has been bearing fruit for over 2,000 years. If you're a Christian today, you are part of that fruit. And if you're not a Christian, you should see that Jesus Christ has died for sinners. All kinds of sinners have placed their faith in Jesus. And perhaps you're being drawn to him. Jesus, the magnet, Jesus, the exalted one. See how much he has done for you in Psalm 22. We can't grasp it all. Understand there is no other way of salvation. This is it. And Jesus has opened up a way through his atoning sacrifice. Understand if you are struggling today, if you are suffering today, that Jesus can identify with sufferers. And let's rejoice today that you and I will never be forsaken. We will never be abandoned. It is finished, was his cry. Now in heaven, lifted high. Hallelujah. What a savior. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Were you there when God raised him from the dead? Sometimes it makes me want to tremble, tremble, tremble. Father, we lift our hands in praise to you on this special day as we think about all that Jesus Christ did on behalf of people like us. We rejoice in the good news of grace today that Jesus Christ, the God-man, has reconciled us to our Father, who's given us the forgiveness of sins, who's made us his brothers and sisters, who's bought for himself a church, who has inaugurated a new creation. And we say, Lord Jesus, with the writer John in Revelation, worthy is the Lamb 
who was slain. Be pleased with us as we live our lives to your glory, both now and forever. And everybody said, amen, amen.